My name is Thaddeus Bent, and I have a close insight into fear. If fear were a man, we'd likely go on bike rides together. But fear is not a man, my friends. He has no feet to put in the pedals. No, fear is something altogether different, ineffable, unknowable, ungainly, like a mattress. It would doubtless be too much for soft-psyched oxygen dependents like you if you were to gaze into the rancid, acne-ravaged face of real fear. You, 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 you wouldn't be able to handle it. You'd, you'd, you'd go nuts, mad, mad, and you'd, 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 probably, you'd probably go like the to try and wash the image off your eyeballs with coke or something stupid like that. Because you know what you like. Close your eyes. Good. Are you sitting uncomfortably, ladies and gentlemen? Good. Then we can begin. You are in a dark place, filled with light. Welcome. One yesterday, several years ago, I, Faddy Spent, was resting along the banks of the little rivers and tributaries of Sefton Park. I had removed my thick woolen hiking socks and heelys and slipped my aching tootsies into the cold waters, as is my wont, and watched the beautiful summer's day around me, remembering the time when humanity had yet to walk this earth and dogs had no one to throw their frisbees. The summer sun was at my back, and at my front, and at my sides as well, because it was midday, so it was right in the middle. But my thoughts were elsewhere, led astray by the eerie intro of the special's doom-laden hit, Ghost Town, emanating from my Sony Discman. I was immersed in the ineffable, entrenched in the Eldritch, with no mommy or daddy to pull me from this preternatural petri dish of possibility and take me home to tea. Although I had brought a packet of Roundtree's body parts back with me from the 1990s, so sustenance was far from my main concern. My main concern was ghosts, and time, and cricket, and the terrible tale of Mr. Bisham Beedy, a middle-aged teenager from the Edge Hill area, who bore an almost uncanny resemblance to Reza Ahmed from Rogue One where he plays one of the damp cardboard cutouts masquerading as someone with something meaningful to say about war. He's much better utilised in Four Lions. I am O. In this terrifying tale, the weather was far less clement than my toe-soaking sojourn to Sefton Park, and young Bisham was forced to turtle into his collar as the wind whipped around him like a devo single. Bisham, you see, was running running from the authoritative bellow of the night watchman at Wavertree Botanical Gardens, whose unflinching flashlight of petty authority had disturbed Bisham and his underage drinking buddies, and just as the litre of Tesco Value Vodka had been passed to him as well. The group had split up and ran headlong into the night, leaving Bisham with nothing but himself and a share bag of Brannigan's crisps for company. Spare a thought for your own time in Bisham's shoes, ladies and gentlemen. 
skulking through the twilight realm of your late teens, not old enough to be served without identification and forced to cower against the elements on abandoned scrubland for something as simple as a Ramos gin fizz or Grolf's lager beer. A memorable rite of passage for all young souls, unless you got to drink in your parents' house because they didn't love you. Bisham slowed his step as his stitch outpaced his spear and listened out for the jackboots pursuing him. He was sick of sneaking around like this. The last time he'd had a proper piss-up had been when Sylvia's mother had burst under the weight of an articulated lorry, and the rest of the family went to the funeral. Bishon had been close to sealing the deal as well, until Sylvia's brother sent a selfie with the open casket. That had been six months ago, and now the nights were drawing in, and no one's house was free. If only we could find somewhere warm and quiet and off the map, sighed Bisham, and leant against the hard brick wall. He fell through it. Fuck. Bisham groaned and brought his hand to the back of his head. He felt jagged edges, cracks and shrapnel. He had landed on his Brannigan's crisps. Bisham sat up and blearily surveyed his surroundings. Despite falling in the middle of a dark winter's night, he now found himself in an eerie autumnal twilight zone. The dark blue skies scattered with stars as multicolored auroras weave their way across the firmament. Despite falling in the middle of a block of terraced housing, he now found himself in deep square leg of a green and incredibly well-manicured cricketing oval, complete with dark varnished wickets in its sandy center and small standing terraces either side. And despite Sefton Park Cricket Club's warnings of him being barred from all county cricket clubs after the unfortunate Dayglow vomiting incident, the clubhouse across the way looked warm and beckoning. <sighs> Worth a go, shrugged Bisham, rising to his feet, and set off towards the cosy lights on the other side of the phantasmal field. Bisham was just practicing his best adult voice as he crossed the spectral silly mid-on when he felt a ripple of pins and needles running up his body. Dust motes began to swirl around the crease, and soon they reared upwards like a startled man-sized shire horse and coalesced together into a wild-eyed figure, glowering at Bisham from somewhere behind a luxurious mutton-chop and moustache combo. In theory, the figure was tall, but it was twisted, limbs constricted and tightened, by the cricketing whites he wore, stretched like a straitjacket across a perfectly acceptable dad bod, making it look gnarled and contorted and bulbous in all the wrong places. Clasped in his hands was a long, heavy cricket bat, dripping with linseed oil and menace. At long last, a challenger, roared the batsman. How's about it, boy? Uh, no thanks, said Bisham jovially. I was getting a pint at the clubhouse. The batsman's neck craned its head into a 35 degree angle like a curious dog investigating a subwoofer, minus that image's wholesome charm. Are you a member of the club? he asked. Uh, yes I am, replied Bisham, waving cheerily as he passed. The man swung his bat towards the youth in a backhanded swipe that fried any ozone unlucky enough to get in its way, and bursting the remains of the Brannigan share bag in Bisham's hands, showering the air in burning beef and mustard. 
Shitting Christ on a bike! yelled Bisham as he turned and fled back the way he had came. <laughs> You're not the one that's supposed to be running! bellowed the batsman after the boy, his laughter reverberating across the twilight grounds. Bisham was pelting down the outfield, terrified out of his mind, when he felt himself push through the womb of that anomalous dimension, slip through the hymen of existence, and back into that ill-kempt bush of reality. Colliding headlong with something in the darkness beyond. Bisham looked up into the harsh, blinding light. But it wasn't God that reached out his hand from on high, nor was it the wretched batsman come to collect his unknown due. It was Fat Chris. Have you been in the haunted cricket club? asked Fat Chris in his stout-hearted cadence, scooping space raiders into his dewlapped face. Bisham lost consciousness, and the narrative ducks out for a quick fag break. Whilst outside, the narrative runs into an old friend from school, and they get chatting over old times and broken zippos. The narrative lights up another, and tentatively admits he'd always harboured a secret crush after her, ever since they sat next to each other in Year 9 biology. She shuts him down politely, and leaves him with a smoke he doesn't really want. An hour later, the narrative stumbles back into proceedings, just as Bisham regains consciousness the smell of frying fat rousing him from his slumber. He rubs his eyes, stretching as he surveys his surroundings. He's in a decent-sized living room with two double-seater sofas spectacularly bowed in the middle, and each and every wall socket was powering a George Foreman grill, brimming with bacon. Just then, Fat Chris entered the room, brandishing a tray of double XL Vionettas, whilst wearing nothing but a kiss-the-cook barbecue apron. My apologies, it gets very hot when I cook, he said sheepishly. Fat Chris gently removed the curtains from the rail and made his way around the room collecting the bacon. Once done, he paused and after great consideration sacrificed a single rasher for Bish and used the rest to lash the Viennettas to the curtain rail like a Maori war club or one of those giant cotton buds from Gladiators. Fat Chris slipped gracefully into his sofa groove and took it upon himself to explain the tale of the haunted cricket ground to Bish. Fat Chris explained that in 1857, where now stands a few blocks of terrace housing on the corner of Wavertree and Juring Road, there was once the little-known Wavertree Road cricket ground, captained by one Colonel George Burke. His competency at the crease was renowned throughout the country, and in some circles he is still considered the greatest batsman in the northwest area. That was until the day he opened his kit bag and realised he'd accidentally brought his own son's whites to the match instead of his own. Unfortunately for the colonel, his son Kierkegaard Burke is widely regarded as history's first twink. And with no time to return home, Burke was forced to squeeze into his son's extra lean sides uniform, which was so tight and constricting that it was bowled out almost immediately. Enraged, Burke refused to give up the crease, tearing his way through his clothes and insisting that he be bowled out properly. No one could. 
As the years drifted by, cricketers came from far and wide to dismiss him, but Burke remained steadfast, even sleeping on the pitch so as to never give up his claim. By 1880, the club had had enough of him, and so they decided to sell the land for housing developments, and Burke was bulldozed into his beloved crease. Some say he has haunted the land where the ground stood ever since. In 1921, a cotton merchant on Thorburn Drive snapped his key in the front door and missed the evening session of the second test of the 2005 Ashes, which was an exciting bit. In 1919, a child left a Sega Mega Drive cartridge of Brian Lara Cricket out in the window of his house on Milroy Way, the sun warping it so badly that the game would not play, but instead would recite satanic verses to the tune of Soul Limbo by Booker T and the MGs in a malevolent West Indian accent. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. And in 2007, in St. Lucia, all-rounder Andrew Flintoff lost control of his faculties and hijacked a pedalo, pedaling miles out into the Caribbean Sea in search of Ian Botham. Having heard all this, Bisham chewed his bacon thoughtfully. How come there's a cricket ground in another dimension then? Fat Chris shrugged indifferently and took another bite off his bacon ice cream war club. Bisham looked down at his hands. Any idea what happens if you win? The next night, Bisham Beedy met his friends on the corner of Wayretree and During Road, dressed in a large black puffer jacket and his old cricketing whites underneath. He'd actually been an accomplished bowler for Irby Cricket Club back in the day until he'd lost the team's one and only ball. He led the group down the darkened streets and alleyways until they found Fat Chris, who pointed to a patch of nondescript brick wall. I've found the interdimensional rift in subspace for you, said Fat Chris, snapping off a trotter from the hog roast suspended from the baby sling about his neck. Thanks Chris for a lifesaver, said Bish, shaking the big man's hand before motioning his friends through the portal to the twilight realm. Fat Chris shook his head before plunging his trotter into the Doctor Strange cake he bought for his lunch and hoped Bisham would be alright. As his friends jimmied the back door betwixt dimensions, Bish strolled confidently to the eerie centre of Wavertree Road cricket ground and removed his puffer jacket, revealing his whites to the swirling auroras above. As he did so, a smattering of polite applause flitted across the twilight oval, and Bish looked to the once empty stands of the spectral spectators who had materialised to watch the show. The air began to crackle through the pavilion end, and out of the cracks in the wicket emerged Colonel George Burke, as though someone had planted a cricket bastard that was known now blooming. The colonel stared down the wicket at Bish, his rat-trap mouth curled in a slight smile. He tapped his bat on the rock-hard ground and took his guard. Bish swung his arms as he limbered up, strolling confidently around the wicket. Come on, boy! Let's have you! roared Burke from under his straw hat. 
I'll take it a hundred and twenty against the gentlemen of Kent, a double hundred against the old England eleven, and fifty-three off Grace in his prime, damn you! Come on! Bowl! if you dare, sir! Bish cricked his neck and began his run-up. A bass cheer of anticipation oscillated through the crowd as he panted down the wicket, pulling back his arm and spreading his fingers over the red leather like a veteran dominatrix. The cheers reached a crescendo as Bish's arm came down into position, and silence reigned as the ball slipped lightly out of his fingers. Like a lady die gag in a mainstream venue, it had gone too far, far, too far. The colonel grinned and took a step forward, ready to smash Bish's foolish full toss out of the ground. But just as his bat was about to bite, just as the crowd braced themselves for the savage crack of lever on willow, the ball moved. Just a fractional turn in the air, but it was enough for the delivery to coyly slide past the savage drive and strike the ground with a little puff of dust before the ball spun back again to send Burke's middle stump spinning. The soft thumps of the bales hitting the sand rippled through the twilight realm, muffling the gobsmacked crowd out of existence and saving them all the walk home. Well, bold, smiled Burke, and as he spoke, a gust of wind drifted through his smiling form, and at long last he disintegrated into a small pile of fine ashes. Bish stood over the pile. He inclined his head respectfully in a Corinthian fashion, and then broke out the silver rizzlers from his back pocket. Colonel Burke was a once-in-a-generation cricketer, but cut with a bit of premium Afghan green, he smoked even better. <laughs> Hours later, the gang passed the dead cricketer's ash joint in the circle around the fallen wicket, which in turn supported a large quantity of cheap, borrowed and stolen alcohol. I didn't know you still bold, Bish! exclaimed his old friend, Benjamin Bakula, grinning through narrowed bloodshot eyes at all this undisturbed teenage fun in another dimension. I don't, grinned Bish, and he threw the ball up in the air for them all to see. As it reached the apex of its climb, the gang could see. One side of the ball shine brightly in the moonlight. I may not go the nets anymore, but I know nothing polishes a ball to an unfair degree like Fat Chris's bacon ice cream grease, smiled Bish. The friends laughed. They laughed and they sang, and they swigged and they puffed, and clapped Bisham on the back. And they were never seen again. The end. <whistles> Dear Fadius. I bought my seven-year-old son Disney. <clears throat> my seven-year-old son Disney a samurai sword at a car boot as he would not stop whining. It was raining, but the youngish guy that sells loose sweets and DVDs might make Disney quite a good new dad. It is a real sword. I now know that if you drop a yellow duster on the blade of the sword, it will shear the duster in two by force of gravity. And as he is seven, I did put tape on the blade. 
I let him blow off some steam on some of his dad's old clothes, and he tired himself out. It was then that the strange stuff started happening. I let him take the sword to bed with him because I was sick of arguing with him. He's so unreasonable after his bedtime coke. Anyway, I was downstairs with one ear in on the phone, on, on my laptop. Which, which is it? I was downstairs with one earphone in on my laptop. Well, oh, I see. I was downstairs with one earphone in on my laptop when I heard the voices upstairs. My son was sat up in bed and the sword was propped up in the wicker chair his dad used to tell him bedtime stories in. They appeared to be having a conversation in fluent Japanese. I didn't stay long. The fizz was going out of me Prosecco. Anyway. My boy Disney has calmed down a lot. He doesn't scream and tantrum anymore. In fact, he generally just kneels in total silence and paints beautiful calligraphy in ink. When I asked him if he talked to the sword, he explained that the blade is inhabited by the spirit of Takagara Ieyasu, the first of the Edo Shoguns and one of the three unifiers of Japan. It's a funny thing, but Diz is now almost spookily calm and no longer totally dependent on sugar. He also wowed his karate teacher by choking out an older boy with a 7th Dan necklock. I'm pretty certain I can stealth his teacher, but how can I monetize this? Anyone you can put me in touch with. Nice one, Alison. Alison. There are, to my mind, some people, close-up magicians, plant pot enthusiasts, who just shouldn't breed. And I bet you like ceramics and card tricks. Just to clarify, I, 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 I did that thing where you put your hand on the, you put your hand on something, and and it, like it's hot. I thought that put down was actually really good. Um, great, I might do a mic drop actually. Oh, it's in the stand. Hang on, it, I just kick it over from here. Mic drop. Pretty cool. Right, so uh, another, another letter. Um, th this one's called the Empty Hose. I, I re I'm really digging. Um, I'm really digging. Astolon actually that you started annotating these. Uh, the, the Empty Hose. What's that? Um, an abandoned hose or some types of. Oh, oh, all right. Yes, okay. The Empty House. <clears throat> it reads thusly: Hey, Fadius, I do house clearances. Although I might stop now. Now and again we get difficult jobs. Grand canoes down narrow stairs, taking frames off doors to get sofas out. Usually it isn't anything we can't handle, and the lads are a good crew. So long as they get the drive through McDonald's in the van in the morning, they'll work like beavers. They don't chew the furniture though, like beavers would. Just to be clear. Dean does have milkshake for breakfast though. Which considering his job is heavy lifting is simply crazy. I can't help but agree. Anyway, I knew we could be in for an interesting time by the address on the invoice. After all, there aren't many houses called the Pandemonium Fortress, except in Knowsley where there are three or four. The fortress was in fact a fair-sized mansion up a leafy lane. A big job, but probably only a week's work for a fast crew like ours, even if Dean does get heartburn off his 6am litre of milkshake. 
We finished yesterday, after a nightmare two months. A literal nightmare. Usually, the owners have passed on from old age, and not an incident of mass spontaneous combustion, which is not a sentence you expect to read on a dispatch note. You could tell that something was up with the place. The painted black floors, the Old Testament verses written in highly suspect rusty brown ink on the Chinese wallpaper, and the fingernails stuck in the door frames. Trouble started when Ben and Dean started clearing the hall by the front door, and the coat stand came to life, like some R-rated Beauty and the Beast servant, and broke Ben's nose with one of its Burmese teak coat-hanging tentacles. Then it knocked Dean over and... Well, I suppose it mounted him as a dog would. It was lucky he had his skinny jeans on. Even so, he can't drink milkshake anymore. Anything cold makes him think of cold metal. I shan't bore you with the details, but all the furniture came alive, was presumably evil, and definitely meant us harm on a number of levels. I was ingested by a leather sofa, which crushed me like an anaconda, forcing the rich Corinthian leather into my choking mouth till my lungs burned. This being particularly nasty, as it was one of those places that just screams regular satanic orgies, and in fact had it written fortnightly on the fridge door calendar. Even our parking permit spent every journey to and from the property trying to persuade us to kill ourselves, and then swearing foully when Ben finally stuck it in the glove box. And to make matters even worse, because of that, we got a parking ticket. Fortunately, we suggested the traffic warden write the ticket out on a Georgian writing desk, which fired its drawers out and burst his bowel. We did have a laugh at that, so it wasn't a complete nightmare. Except we watch a man die, I suppose. Well, a traffic warden anyway, but by then we were past caring. The stuff is all in our lockup in the gull. You can hear it, screaming highly creative threats of sexual violence and some pretty next-level sexual swearing from two junctions away. I'm not sure how we're going to sell it as it is. At a distance, it sounds like a playground in Manchester. Anyway, the main reason I was writing to you was to ask, do you believe in ghosts? Cheers, James Leslie. Yes, James, I do. Perhaps we could go for a coffee, though. Fucking hell, did you, did you, did you hear that? <laughs> what the coat stand did to the boy? <laughs> that's, wow, that's pretty, um, Jesus. <laughs> I was sort of like picturing it as some sort of like Ray Harryhausen nightmare. And the coat stand it makes screeching noises like Talos. We, we've got to get hold of this guy. It sounds incredible. Also, do you think do you think they do pickups? I, 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 want, I want the Billy bookcase. Anyway, um, I'll take it down. Pretty, pretty fierce stuff. That pretty great. Yeah, must nip to IKEA. This is a darkly exotic story of romance, loyalty, betrayal, 
and selfishness laid out beneath the scorching sun of the old Reno de España, or as they know it in their lingo, Spain. It is as far away from Liverpool as any place could be. Gone are the purple bins, replaced instead by whirling flamenco dancers who crash their heels to the beat of a different drum, sweat beading on black lace instead of congealing on velour tracksuits. People eat their tea at four o'clock in the morning, and everyone is wild, passionate, and most of all, dangerous. Except at lunchtime when they're all asleep. Deep into these warm Mediterranean winds of time, we see two brothers. Hello! The Cohen brothers, Barry and Paul. They were the joint heirs to one of the most powerful families in all of old Andalusia. A dynasty that stretched far, far back in time, controlling Spain's chief export of Twixes. Paul was the elder, a hearty, broad-shouldered signore with a thick, dark moustache and impeccable mullet. Barry was the younger, lean and spelt as a dancer, with a dark moustache trimmed to incredible precision and an equally well-groomed mullet. The brothers were inseparable. Whether it was attending the bullfights at Anfield in Spain, <coughs> knocking back shot after shot of baked bean tequila at Barcevar in Spain, or blazing through endless cigars outside the family's palatial Barcelona bar on the Calle España del Rencio Street, Elad in Spain. Ciao, but although the bonds of brotherhood were strong, Paul always held a great jealousy for his younger brother, the favoured son of their father, Dan the Van Cohen who, unbeknownst to the younger Cohen, but entirely beknownst to the elder, intended to leave the family's entire fortune to Barry. Things came to a head during a sojourn to the British pirate town of Magaluf, where the two encountered one of those waitresses who sprayed vodka down people's throats from a keg on her back, and each had fallen deeply and irrevocably in love with her. On the final ill-fated evening of their holiday, Paul said to Barry, We should fight for the hand of Penelope Nandos. This, incidentally, was the name of the waitress. You're not serious, replied Barry. You think Penelope is a thing to fight over here, Mana? She is a person. If she wants either of us, she'll let us know. Bollocks to that, said Penelope, who loved blokes scrapping over her. Said yours. If you are to fight for the hand of a senorita, then you will arm wrestle in the old ways, with swords. Paul threw his sword, the blade shining in the bar's strobe lighting, as he grinned at his quarry. Tio! He screamed, charging headlong into battle. A somewhat foolish move, as Barry gracefully parried the assault, and slashed playfully at his brother's bright red suspenders, twanging them with an audible boyoink. To me! countered Barry. The brothers were soon fencing, and it became clear that Paul's wild swings would be no match for Barry's wit-like rapier. And soon, the elder Cohen brother lay beaten on the sticky barroom floor. Barry reached out a hand to pick his defeated brother up off the ground, when suddenly, the city's guards burst through the doors and surrounded the young Cohen, their helmets gleaming in the candlelight as they readied their swords and cocked their AK-47s menacingly. Brother, help me! shouted Barry as the guards gripped his shoulders. But as Barry's eyes met Paul's, his older brother smiled maliciously as he stood, then gently cupped the arse of Penelope Nando's.
in victory. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, he laughed as the favoured son was dragged away, never to be seen again. A week later, Paul and Penelope were married in the Barcelona bar in Spain. And although Penelope had been hoping that Barry would be the victor, she was ready to sit up for the money and was happy to marry Paul, despite admitting that Barry had the bigger penis if pressed on the matter, which of course she often was. Oh. Fourteen years passed to a time when the younger Cohen brother was forgotten. Only Dan the Van had kept the faith that his favourite son would one day come home. But alas, on this bright and airy evening, the family coin was gathered in mourning for the wake of their beloved patriarch, because Dan the Van was dead. Dan the Van Coyne had been taking part in the famous Catherine Street Bull Run in order to raise money for his son's extradition. Paul had suggested to his father that he dress himself as Barry's favorite animal, the cow. As soon as the starting pistol had been fired, Dan the Van was set upon by dozens of angry, randy bulls. And when he finally managed to crawl out of the tattered and distressingly sticky remains of the costume's rump, an inexperienced matador mistook him for a premature calf and shot him in the head from half a mile away with a telescopic sighted rifle from behind a grassy knoll. When he heard the news, Paul was inconsolable with grief, whooping and capering mournfully and running the length of Casadel Renshaw Street, helicoptering his shirt over his head, wailing, I'm rich! I'm rich! I'm fucking rich! He had run all the way to the wake at El Blob Shop, pausing only to high-five a dark figure smoking outside, his face shrouded by a large-brimmed hat and idly fingering his rapier. There was a party atmosphere at the will reading. Although Mama Cohen, the ancient matriarch, was dressed in black and weeping softly, Paul was in high spirits as he entered the solicitors bare-chested, wearing a large sombrero, novelty sunglasses, and playing I Want Money by the flying lizards out of his phone. The family's lawyer, Hermanos Espirito Santo Murray, was looking forward to puncturing his mood, knowing that Barry was the sole beneficiary. But when the document was brought out, it read quite differently. Paul gets it all, it said on every page in red marker pen. Suddenly, a bitter gust of wind blew in from the open window, extinguishing the candles around them, plunging the room into blackness. Paul stood in panic, flicking the switch to the halogen light bulbs above and using their harsh glare to relight the candles around him so he could see. The room was empty, with nothing but the curtains billowing over the high cliffs of Great Charlotte Street in Spain below. And there, nailed to the desk with nails, a stark warning, an ominous, blood-curdling message for the newly crowned King of Spanish Biscuits. Paul, you're a shit. Probably nothing, said Paul, sighing in relief as he went in search of a hammer to pry out the nails. But it wasn't probably nothing. It was definitely something. 
and the next day, as Paul took his usual horse-drawn Uber to work, he found himself in heavy traffic, unusual for that time of day. Agitated, he craned out of the window to see what a delay was. The stinging pungency of sulphur and melting chocolate hit his nostrils as he looked upwards to see his Twix warehouses engulfed in fiery flames. Paul stepped out of the cab to inspect the damage. What happened? He shouted to no one in particular. Looks like an accident, said a dark figure in a large brimmed hat leaning against one of the fire engines. But they say the fire alarms weren't working. All it took was a spark from a stray cigarette, he said, stamping out his Spanish prison rolly on the empty jerry can at his feet. Paul was about to ask the man about his oddly specific comments, when suddenly... An explosion tore apart what remained of the warehouse, sending a cascade of paper flares raining down onto the cobbled streets below. He bent over to read one of the burning flyers that had landed at his feet. It read, Paul, you're a shit. He looked back to the dark figure, only to see him pedaling away on a red and white striped quadricycle, disappearing into the smoke-choked street like a revenant of Rotherham. This was not the last such accident to befall the Andalusian Biscuit Company. And within a year of Paul Cohen's tenure, the once mighty Twix empire was spiralling into financial ruin, like a jam roly-poly down a hill of entropy. With the family business now in tatters, Paul was forced to part with much of his personal wealth, and thus with his beloved Penelope Nando's, who ran off with Jose McVitie's, the scottish Colombian biscuit magnate. See you, bald cunt. Heavy! Tonight, a year after his triumph for the will reading, Paul was sitting hunched alone over a table at the Death Row Diner on Hope Street in Spain. Outside, a storm was brewing. The air was thick and clammy, and the skies above were dark with prophetic fallacy, which is not a penis that knows when it's going to rain. So pack it in. The Death Row Diner held happy memories for Paul. In their salad days, he and Barry had got drunk there for the first time on cocktails. He morosely sipped his congealing green mile, a mixture of blended cream, mintero and Kahlua, and waited for his Ted Bundy char-grilled ciabatta. The theme of the restaurant was in poor taste, but the taste itself was excellent. It was just a shame that there was a dark figure in a black-brimmed hat on the karaoke machine at the far end of the bar, butchering I Will Survive at two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> but then they were in Liverpool. No, they weren't. Um, Spain. They were in Spain. You can cut that, can't you? Yeah? Yeah? Don't shrug at me. Can you cut it? Cut it. It's supposed to be in Spain. He was too busy staring at the singer to pay mind to the food placed in front of him. But when he lifted his shiv to cut the ciabatta, he found nothing but a large custard pie with a dark familiar missive piped atop it in blood-red fondant. Paul, you're a shit. A heavy hand smashed his face into the vacuous pudding, the whipped cream blinding his eyes. The karaoke machine had gone quiet as Paul felt a pencil-thin moustache brush his ear 
and a figure behind him whispered coldly, Silly you, said Barry Cohen. Silly me, said Paul, dislodging a glob of whipped cream from his eyebrow, turning to face the fraternal foe. But he was not the man he remembered. Gone was Barry's bright, vacant smile, and in its place a gaunt, harrowing visage. The once pencil-thin moustache, now a haggard collection of wiry grey strands, the spittle of a madman dripping from the corner of his thin, arid lips. Barry, was that truly you? said Paul. Tears were welling in his eyes as all the guilt he had repressed came bubbling out. You look fucked, mate. That's what 15 years in the Spanish prison with no parole will do to you, replied Barry. First, I was afraid. I was petrified. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. But then I spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong. And I grew strong. I learned how to get along. Paul reached for the rapier at his waist, but Barry was quicker. His blade sent Paul's half-drawn sword spinning across the room. And before Paul could go for the knife in his boot, Barry's steel flashed across Paul's face in a flurry of cold precision. Paul staggered back, dashing at the fresh blood on his face, and caught his reflection in the mirrored bar. Paul, you're a shit was now etched in bloody letters across his devious face. Jesus Christ, how did you fit all that on? said Paul, genuinely impressed. I've had a lot of practice, said Barry, his steely gaze broken briefly with chufferedness. Are you spicing then? chirped Penelope Nando's from the end of the bar. She gravitated towards scraps like biscuits to tea. Yes, snapped Barry. But this time, not for a chicken peddling hoor, but for honour and a vengeance. Senors, if you are to fight for honour and vengeance, purred Penelope Nando's, you must do so in the old ways. Pistols, at dawn, with swords, and now. Come then, Humano, I have waited long enough for this, hissed Barry coldly. Hop to it, Paul. No slacking. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, muttered Paul, bracing himself. To you! Barry screamed. To me! countered Paul, parrying the sword of a sharpened toothbrush used for the fish course. Paul fell into the children's party table behind him, and as his brother advanced upon him, he desperately plunged his hand into the Spider-Man birthday cake in search of the file hidden in all Death Row Diner's cakes to defend himself. But the manila folder was no match for Barry's rapier. So he threw a fistful of fondant into his assailant's face. Paul dived under the tables for his own blade and came up swinging at his foe in a wild arc. But even with a face full of cake, Barry nimbly backflipped across the folded steel. The brothers were soon fencing and the swordplay was spectacular. Paul sliced off two of his younger brother's fingers, but not before Barry had run him through, sliced his cheek off, taken both his ears and one of his eyes and punctured his lung. Even after 15 years in prison paella, Barry was still much better at sword fighting. Paul collapsed in a bloodied heap, cowering against the bay windows overlooking the cliffs of Hope Street in Spain. I yelled, brother! I yelled! He managed to gasp through the blood and frosting. 
Please, please help me. Barry stopped and sighed mournfully. He looked upon his blade of vengeance and wearily put it down on the bar. He took Paul's proffered hand and threw him through the plate glass window. He watched his brother's form bounce down the cliffs, gravity and cold rock, smashing his treacherous features to jam before landing on an old-fashioned postbox and breaking into his spine into about twelve bits. You said it, my love! Now at last we may be together! shrilled Penelope Nandos from the bar. Barry turned from the exit and strode across to Penelope. Her eyes were wet with tears. So were his. He stroked her cheek tenderly and threw her out of the window as well. <coughs> Barry Cohen straightened the brim of his hat and walked out of the death row diner to the stock exchange. There he sold his shares in the Cohen Twix company and used the proceeds to start a new company who manufacture biodegradable life preservers that are less harmful to marine life. And so, my friends, the morrow to this ghost story with out any ghosts is this. Revenge is a forest. Well, the signposted. And if you're paying attention, it's easy to find your way back to the car park when you've had enough. L. Finn. <laughs>